The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The title of tonight's sermon is On Either Side of the Cross, because that is where we find ourselves, and that is where we find the two criminals crucified on either side of Christ's cross. And that'll be from Luke chapter 23. So in your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 23. At this point, historically, Jesus has already been betrayed. He's been brought on trial. In his trials, he was not found of anything wrong. And when Pilate desired to release him, the people who had previously shouted at the beginning of the week, Hosanna in the highest, now shout in bloodthirst, crucify him, crucify him. In tonight's text, what we'll see is Jesus' character in between these two criminals, but then ultimately the lens will focus on these three crosses, and the question remains for us, which side of the cross am I on? Let's look now in God's word, Luke 23. We'll pick up in verse 32. Two criminals are being led away to be put to death with Jesus. Jesus being bookended between two criminals. In verse 32 of God's word, we read, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, it was earlier read as Golgotha, it's called the skull because it's a hill that protrudes from the ground like a head protrudes from a body. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. I asked myself as I was studying this passage this week, why would God, who is sovereign over all things and providentially ordains the story that he writes, why would he have three crosses? Why not just one? Why three? Why is Jesus crucified in between two criminals? And I I thought of four reasons. The first one, simply, is that the Romans crucified people often. They did so for various reasons, but mainly as execution to deter any future response. Let me tell you a little bit about crucifixion, if perhaps it's an idea that you're not familiar with. First, you should know that crucifixion existed long before Rome. We have historical accounts of many other ancient peoples who would crucify others. But in Roman practice, crucifixion had four stages. Jesus underwent all four of them. The first stage was first, you would be viciously tortured before the cross. So you would be whipped or you would be beaten or some other form of punishment would happen publicly that would cause great physical harm to you. Then the victim would carry their own cross bar, as was read earlier. Jesus was unable to take his very far because he had been beaten so severely before that point. So Simon of Cyrene carried it for him. But this was part of the Roman practice. They wanted to humiliate you by making you carry your own instrument of death up to the hill where you would be crucified. When you reach the top, most people would be fastened to their crossbeam by ropes. Jesus is fastened to his cross by nails that go through his hands. And then the crossbeam would be placed on top of the pole. Some crosses would be shaped like a T. Other crosses would be shaped by the way you're used to seeing the Christian cross. And then you would be fastened to that beam and your whole body would be placed in the hole. Jesus was nailed in his. Rome always would crucify people beside well-known travel roads. 
In other words, like a highway sign, they wanted to crucify you in the most visible and public place possible. Generally, crucifixion, though, was relegated only for those considered not human, which in that era would mainly mean slaves or foreigners who were rebelling against the state. It was very rare for someone considered human by Rome to be crucified. Mainly, it was a terror tactic to keep provinces in order, and even in barbaric times, crucifixion was thought of as especially disgusting and cruel. We have records of Cicero describing crucifixion as the cruelest and most terrible punishment. The historian Josephus called it the most pitiable of all deaths. So why was Jesus crucified in between two criminals? First, to further shame, discredit, and humiliate him as much as possible is the answer. Why else was Jesus crucified in between criminals? Well, the second reason is because he was fulfilling a centuries-old prophecy from the Bible. Isaiah 53 tells us in verse 12 that the suffering servant, the promised Messiah, would be numbered among or between the transgressors. And yet, in fact, he bore the sins of many. Perhaps you think that's a minor point, that scripture was being fulfilled. But to Jesus, it was a major point. In fact, in Luke 22, Jesus will quote that exact text and say, I tell you, scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus understood Isaiah 53, 12 as being prophesied about him. So Jesus is being crucified among criminals because he's fulfilling the prophecy of the Bible. Why else though? There's a third reason. He's being crucified among criminals because he is being shown as in solidarity with the human race. Don't forget why God became man. He was born to die. He became man so that he could be killable. So here he's in between humans that are condemned. As Hebrews 2.9 puts it, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So why is Jesus on the cross in between humans? To remind us that he did this for humans. But fourth, why is Jesus between two criminals? And here's the title of my sermon, and I think the main reason he's crucified between two criminals. Because he is the dividing line of humanity. You see, every one of us is either on the right side or the wrong side of the cross. See, look at the end of verse 33. One is on his right, and one is on his left, and so are you. You're either on the right side of Christ or the wrong one, and each one of us must decide if we are for or against the Son of God. Now the text shows us what Jesus is doing while he's being crucified, giving us a window into God's heart. Look in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Remember where he is when he says this. He's already been nailed to the cross. His naked body is sliding down the wood. And in order for him to speak, he has to put pressure on his feet, which are nailed into the cross, and pull himself up to have enough air to say what he's saying. And what he is saying is, Father, forgive them. We read over and over again in the Bible that God's heart towards sinners is forgiveness. 
We read in John 3, verse 17, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. We read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come into repentance in the knowledge of the truth. We read in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We read in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, so I say to them, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but wish that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And yet, though God's heart is for all to reach repentance, many will mock God's heart and rebuff his good desire. Look in fact at the end of the verse, verse 34. While Jesus is straining to say, Father, forgive them, what are the people doing? Casting lots to divide his garments. God's saving heart is ignored, mocked, or rebuffed by most. While God is suffering to save, humanity is squabbling over his stuff. Not much has changed. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching and the rulers scoffed at him saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Some watch afraid of any ability to do anything, but the rulers, the Jewish religious leaders actually scoff, mocking Jesus saying, Now they're so certain of victory now that he's being crucified. And so they jeer at him and taunt him. Save yourself, ironically, by suffering. That's exactly what Jesus is doing, saving them. Indeed, the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, is the suffering servant, the one that they missed in Isaiah 53. The soldiers join in. Look in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him Sour wine. Maybe you've wondered why that happens, or maybe your translation says vinegar. Jesus would have thirsted for water, and the soldiers, as a way to taunt him and make fun of him, bring him something that actually does the opposite of provide refreshment. It would make him more thirsty. Verse 37, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Many crosses did have an inscription above them called a titulus, and Jesus is, says, the king of the Jews, and it's written sarcastically. Remember, even that wasn't enough for the Pharisees. They wanted Pilate to add, well, he said he was the king of the Jews. But see, now the lens is going to tighten, and it's going to forget everybody else on the floor, and it's going to move to the three crosses on the hill. And here, the narrator focuses on these three crosses with the implicit question, which side of the cross are you on? So look at the one side, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Let's observe a few things about his mockery. First, he mocks along with the masses. Haven't you seen that happen with people? Once a few people start piling on, then it's just easier to do, and that mob mentality happens. So it is today. So many people are swept into the tide of those who have thinly veiled hatred for Jesus. They belittle his followers. They laugh at his truth claims. They deride his ethical teachings. They jeer at his outdated values and societal norms. Perhaps, foolishly, They even think themselves independent. 
They think, what a maverick am I that I mock at Jesus while they're actually riding a huge bandwagon on the way to destruction. Verse 39, not only does he mock along with the mob, but verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. The Greek word is blasphemeo. You can hear our word blaspheme, but more important than what the word means is actually the tense of the verb. It's imperfect, which means it's something he started doing and then kept doing. The idea is that this man kept hurling insults at Jesus, trying to consistently annoy him. But that made me think of the old Shakespearean insight, he doth protest too much. See, many people reject Jesus with such vehemence and persistence, it's obvious they're trying to drown out their own condemning conscience. But like Poe's telltale heart or a dripping faucet, you can never really make it quiet. You see, you can blame shift to move the spotlight. You can rationalize through comparison of others that you think are worse than you. You can curse the circumstances that you think have brought all of your misfortune. But deep down, you know that if the divine inspector was to call on you, you would stand deserving condemnation. And when that thought angers you, you rail all the louder and the longer. Not only does he mock with the mob and keep railing, but also he tries to group himself with Jesus and yet use Jesus for freedom. Look at the end of verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and don't miss this phrase, and us, because surely you and I are in the same boat. Surely we're both here for the same reasons. So if you really are any of the things you claim to be, then just get me out of this. That's the first side of the cross. But now notice how different the other side is. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Notice what this criminal recognizes Jesus to be. God. How can you rail this way at God? But even more than that, notice how verse 40 continues. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Very few people will ever do this. Come to the conviction that they personally, I personally deserve condemnation. Justly. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the scriptures say. But we want to say, but not me so much. The wages of sin is death, but surely my sins are not the bad ones. But see, this man understands that our condemnation is just. But he understands that Jesus's is not. So look at how the verse continues. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He sees Jesus' total innocence, his complete sinlessness. And then he prays, if you will, because prayer is talking to God. So verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Did you notice earlier When the soldiers were making fun of Jesus, they called him king, but they meant it as a slight. They meant it sarcastically. This man sees Jesus on the cross, but knows he's still the king. So Lord, bring me into your kingdom. 
earlier our brother read from Mark 15. I don't know if you noticed it there, but Mark and Matthew share a detail that Luke doesn't. What Mark and Matthew share is that actually, initially, both criminals were laughing at Jesus. But then grace broke through. And then this man's eyes were opened. Do you know why that encourages me? Have you ever seen someone that you thought, they are unsavable? (laughs) They're just so resistant. They are so obstinate. All they ever do is laugh at Christianity and jeer at it. But isn't God great that in a moment, grace can change everything? He can regenerate the heart of stone. He can change the mind of the dying criminal so that the criminal looks at God in a new light. God is to be feared because of his holiness. I'm to be justly condemned because of my sin. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is the king. Jesus, be merciful to me. And now here's the beautiful promise of the gospel. Look in verse 43. And Jesus said to this criminal, truly I say, here's my promise to you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Why can Jesus promise this man or anyone paradise because he's bearing our hell for us. See, Jesus actually said this in John 14 when he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. What does that mean, I go to prepare a place for you? It means I'm going to the cross so that you can go to paradise. I'm going to take the punishment so that you can have the access that you could otherwise never have. In the verses that follow, verse 44, the cosmos even testifies to Jesus as the Son of God. The world becomes dark in the middle of the day. The temple is torn in two, one that had never before been breached. And Jesus commends his spirit to God the Father. But here's why the salvation of the thief on the cross is such good news for you and I. I mean, it gives hope to every sinner. No matter how far you think you are from God or how sinful you think you've been or how much you think you've done or how bad you think you have behaved, the cross means that the vilest offender can be saved. With Paul, we can cry out, I thank God that though I am the chief of sinners, even I received mercy. See, as one author put it, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven, but heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. This is what the thief understood. So which side of the cross are you on? Do you in pride believe, I deserve better than this? Or do you in self-awareness realize, I am justly condemned, but Christ is innocent? Remember me in paradise. So why this evening should you repent? Remember the thief who just railed at Jesus and mocked him? What did he ever hear from Jesus? The answer, nothing. What will be the final outcome of those who mock God and reject him? The answer, silence. Deafening, eternal silence. No hope, no promise, no relationship, no communication. 
But for those who come to Christ, they will hear the wonderful promise, this day you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is used in the New Testament only two other times. It's used in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about someone caught up to the third heaven of indescribable beauty. The other place it's used is in Revelation 2 where we're told is the tree of life, the heavenly city. So what is paradise then? Well, according to those two passages, it's the heavenly abode where we have access to God. But what makes paradise paradise? I hope the key word that you remember is not paradise, but the words that proceed it. Today you will be with me. Paradise is where Jesus is. See, the good news for this man is that there's a place that Jesus gives access to so that we can be with him forever. But we only can go there if our heart's been tender enough to acknowledge our need. And so I want to read to you one of my favorite poems. It's called Good Friday. It was written in 1866 by Christina Rossetti. And she writes this, in fear of having a hard heart. Am I a stone and not a sheep? Then I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross to number drop by drop thy blood slow loss and yet not weep. Not so those women loved who with exceeding grief lamented thee, not so fallen Peter, weeping bitterly. Not so the thief was moved. Not so the sun and moon, which hid their faces in a starless sky, a horror of great darkness at broad noon, I, only I. Yet give not o'er, but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock. Greater than Moses, turn and look once more and smite a rock. And if God in his grace smites the rock of our hard heart, then he'll give you a new heart. And you'll sing words that were written less than 10 years after Christina Rossetti's, and they are these. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah. What a savior. Let's look to him this morning. God, we come before you. I come before you, God, a terrible sinner. And so, God, I am so grateful for Good Friday because if you were to inspect me for all that I am, all my thoughts, all my desires, all my words, all my actions, if the divine inspector brought me into inspection, I could expect nothing but condemnation and justly so. So Lord, on that cross should have been me. But yet in grace, Lord, you so love the world that you sent your one and only son so that whoever believes in him does not have to perish, but will receive the gift of eternal life. And tonight we remember that that gift came at the highest cost, the cost of your son. The son who arched up his back to pray, Father, forgive them, and was received with mockery and insults. As a more recent songwriter has put it though, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Because the reality is, none of us 
have beheld and responded to the beauty of God as we ought. And so, Lord, in a life of busyness and in a life where we think that we might be the center of reality, remind us that actually the universe stopped when Jesus was on the cross. Because the creator, its center, was there, voluntarily giving his life, even for those who put him there in hatred. And yet, Lord, that life is given to anyone who, like the thief on the right side, says, Lord, remember me. Remember me a sinner because you're an innocent savior, because you're the king who can take me to your kingdom, who can lead me to paradise so that I can be with you. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would bring someone to paradise by working in them to call out on you. And Lord, I pray that we would remember that where you are, we will be because you will never leave us or forsake us. So may you work in our hearts a taste, a foretaste of the paradise to come as our worship continues. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.